This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, we have NBC's War Telescope as it aired on June 12, 1943. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. It was hosted by noted war correspondent Morgan Beatty. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Each Saturday at this time, the National Broadcasting Company presents Morgan Beatty's War Telescope a review of the war week and the forecast of possible developments to come. Morgan Beatty is NBC's veteran war reporter in the British capital. And so for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Morgan Beatty looking at the 197th week of war through the war telescope. This was the week the pattern of Allied victory over the Axis in Europe began to unfold. It was the week of the thousand bomber raid on Pantelleria, the raid that sunk Mussolini's island aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean. The swift conquest of Pantelleria, therefore, is a milestone in warfare. This was also the week of the heaviest heavy bomber raid of the war on industrial Germany. Last night, the RAF hit Dusseldorf and Minster in the rich Ruhr Valley again. And this week, General Ira C. Aker of the American Air Force in Britain revealed that our own precision daylight bombing fleet here has been doubled since March and will be doubled again by October. And this week, the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, revealed that the American... Anglo-American High Command made a decision a year ago to give air warfare a chance to prove whether it could deliver a knockout blow. Now the punch is being delivered in the Mediterranean and against the Ruhr Valley and against the German defenses along the North Sea coast. What are the chances of success? Can air power alone, or air power as a leading weapon, really win for us? If there were anything like a sure answer to that question, the High Command could sit back and wait for the end, calm and secure, in the inevitability of that end. And you and I could sort of coast up to the finish line and let the airplane take the shortcut route to victory. But we can't sit back, for the answer is not in the bag, as it were. Air power is still a pioneer force, even yet. Before the war's over, we may thank our lucky stars for that fact, because pioneers are people who set out to prove what they believe. All of us know the stories of pioneer days in our own far west, 
how our grandfathers and great-grandfathers had faith in a new land, a faith that carried them to conquest over wild Indians and the trackless forests and deserts, and at a frightful cost in lives. But they won while the stay-at-homes were saying they were foolhardy. And today, the pioneer spirit is still the beacon light of the Great West, except, that is, for an occasional zoot suit riot. It is discouraging a little to read the stories of the zoot suit crisis in English papers. But anyway, the pioneer spirit has always won. And it's the same with the Allied Air Forces. They believe in their weapon, like our Western pioneers believed in a new land, with zeal and faith and determination. Headlines follow in the slipstream of the airman's deeds. The sensational nature of the aviator's weapon helps, but his obvious honesty also plays a part. The RAF commentators in London, for example, are the best press agents of all time. Barnum and Bailey never had better ones. They seldom speak without making a headline, but they pull no wool over anybody's eyes. They're well aware of the fact that air power cannot carry a steady supply of food and fuel and ammunition, and above all, air bases on its back, like armies and navies. They know the great shipping fleets of the Allied nations must haul the cement and the engineers and the shells and the guns. They know both offensive and defensive armies must be at the ready to protect air bases and hold new ones, perhaps even to capture some. So far, air power has proved its case as the spearhead for both land and sea attacks. Tedder's uh, carpet of bombs cracked the Arnhem Lion in Tunisia. Spot's tactical air force blasted Pantelleria to bits. But how about the great landmass of Europe? Is air power cracking the fortress, aided, of course, by blockade, is air power wrecking German industry? Those are the questions we're all asking. For if air power can answer, there's no use throwing in hundreds of thousands more lives. And today I can give you a part of the answer. This week, for the first time, the most important detective in the world today spoke out publicly. He's a man you may never have heard of before now. He's Lord Selkirk. He's an economic detective who revealed exact estimates based on provable facts. These estimates were run through the hard filter the British government has set up to separate fact from fiction and wishful thinking. It's the Ministry of Economic Warfare. It takes an act of Congress, or rather Parliament, to get into the Ministry of Economic Warfare. The man on the door must know your business, whom you're going to see, why, and how long you're going to stay. If you're overtime, he sets out to find out why. And there's a reason. It's in the private offices under Lord Selborne that the results of air warfare, blockade, sabotage, fatigue, are all studied and appraised like a jeweler would value a diamond. They don't swallow the sensational stories of refugees over at the ministry. They check them. All the starvation reports are thrown out, not because they're untrue, but because they come mostly from people who are not in a condition to give scientific answers. And the health reports from Germany in the occupied areas do not show that food conditions are bad enough to affect the production of Axis Europe. They're that hard-boiled in the MEW. It's in the MEW where the air reconnaissance photographs of the RAF and the American Air Forces are studied and compared with known industrial facts. There, the possible effects of the great dam raids, like those in May, are calculated in advance. But Lord Selborne tells you that the final effects of those raids cannot be estimated until after this summer's dry spell. But there are men who could foretell what would happen when the dams burst, where the water would go, and what it would knock out. And it all happened that way, because they knew the dams of the Ruhr, both as engineers and because they've been on the spot. 
geographers, historians, refugees, British intelligence men, biologists, food experts, soldiers, all play their part in reports to the MEW. And besides that are the endless body of German law and decrees and newspaper editorials and radio broadcasts. The economic detectives are not interested in propaganda as such unless it reveals a weakness on the German home front, such as the grumbling of the women when they were called up early this year for factory work for the first time. From all of these things, Lord Selburne and his men, and women too, by the way, can tell you that the Germans were forced to bar outsiders from Essen by law after one of the big raids. The economic detective knows, and he won't tell you why he knows or how, that one of these raids cost 300,000 persons their businesses or their homes. That streetcar service had stopped and wouldn't be resumed until a certain date. He knows exactly how much of certain industries has been damaged and how long before they can be repaired. For example, the repair on the roof of one plant alone will cost about $5 million and a certain number of man-hours of labor. All these man-hours have been added up, and the total effect on German economy is thus calculated. Guesswork is ruthlessly thrown aside. The economic detective knows that the Germans did not organize their air raid protection service properly in advance, and they've had to resort to tricks to get industrial workers into homes and keep out others who do not contribute directly to the war effort. Part of the proof, a tiny part, is the story of the little old German lady of Cologne who was bombed up. She went to the rescue center and she was assigned to a three-room flat along with a family of five. She was also given a permit to buy furniture and pots and pans and a mattress and a cupboard. But permit or no permit, there were none of these things to be had anywhere. So she went back to the rescue center and there she discovered she could be helped no further since she had been marked down as an air raid victim who had been suitably housed. All of this, of course, contributes to fatigue. And that factor, too, is figured into the economic detective's calculations. Decrees, new laws, the output of furniture in a town in Hungary, all published facts that can hardly be withheld from publication by the German government can be used to check the stories of refugees. The fact is finally distilled out that Germany was not prepared to handle air raid victims in the Ruhr and to get people back to work quickly. Germany cannot, as did Britain, disperse her industry because the air raids continue and for other reasons. Sometimes the economic detectives get amazingly puzzling clues. The other day in the German paper Dongri, a dispatch from Magdeburg reported a meeting of Nazi party speakers. They planned a drive for factory rallies. 3,000 rallies between June the 1st and September the 4th. Why are these rallies necessary between those dates? Are they going to cut vacations this year? How will the workers take it if they do? And how many man hours of labor will be affected? If the economic detective doesn't know the answers, he'll get them. But what is the net result of all this detective work in the last four years? As we've said, Lord Selburne spoke out publicly this week for the first time. He felt safe enough to add up his figures and facts and tell the, the world the total of air raid, blockade, deterioration of machinery and railways, dilution of labor, that is, the use of slave labor and unskilled workers, and a dozen or more war-wearing factors on Germany. Overall, says Lord Selburne, industrial production in Germany has shown a decline of 15 to 20 percent as compared with 1942. In the Ruhr, the decline is about 35 percent, and in the rest of Germany, 10%. We in the Ministry of Economic Warfare, says Lord Selburne, attribute half of this decline to air raids. 
He says the RAF concentrates on the Ruhr because that area produces well over two-thirds of the basic war-making materials of Germany. And as Lord Selburn, if you take the whole of Axis-controlled territory, the Ruhr contains about one-third of the industrial capacity of all of Europe in basic products like hard coal, coke, pig iron, steel ingots, and casting, castings, and special steels, the sinews of war. And has Germany moved her industry out of the Ruhr to escape the effect of air raids? There is, Lord Selbert answered, no target like the Ruhr in the whole world. The heavy industries of that area, which are the basic industries in war, cannot, in our belief, be transferred elsewhere at this stage. You can't pick up a coal mine and transport it. You can't pick up a whole population of a city and transport it without building houses. He says the Germans tried moving some heavy industries that have been bombed out a short distance away from the Ruhr. Such industries have fallen short of their production goals for lack of fuel. Can the industries of the Ruhr be silenced from the air with the help of blockade? Here is Lord Selburn's answer. The Germans will have to deal with daylight as well as night raids. Daylight raids are becoming an increasingly important factor. The Americans have shown us that a degree of precision is possible in daylight. I personally hope, says Lord Selburn, that these attacks on the Ruhr will be pressed home until the Germans realize that industrial production in the Ruhr is impossible. For as soon as they rebuild their industries, we shall knock them down again. It is, he said, a hard, tough nut to crack, and a very heavily defended one. But it will crack, and we shall keep on attacking it until it does. Because we're convinced that, as the Germans themselves used to say in the early days of the war, the destiny of the Ruhr is the destiny of Germany. Now there we have the warp and woof of the outline of strategy laid down by Prime Minister Churchill in Washington last month and in London this week. The main point is not to sit back and expect air power to win for us, to accomplish the inevitable. The big job, and we cannot stress this too often, is to convince the Germans that the end is inevitable, and one way to do it is to crack the industrial back of the Ruhr. So far, the economic detective report that half the destruction of industry, half the lag in Germany, has been produced by air power, superimposed, of course, on blockade. That's half of 20%. But many experts would agree, however, that no more than half of Germany's industry would have to be destroyed to produce a convincing proof to German leadership that defeat is inevitable. That means the air weapon has really done 20% of the job its leaders had mapped out for it. And that's just what the airman wants to tackle, the rest of it. Air power has sunk Rommel, it's sunk Arnim, and he's blasted Pantelleria, backed, of course, by the elaborate backbone of supply and blockade furnished by our armies and navies. Naturally, the airman is convinced he can sink the Ruhr. The pioneer is eager to do what's never been done before. Now he's got the word of the best economic detective service in the world, the British Ministry of Economic Warfare, that he's already done 10 to 20% of the job in a test run ending on June the 1st. Meanwhile, in the background, stand Churchill and Roosevelt in the high command. Obviously, they hope the airmen can come through, but they also stand ready to throw the weight of the armies and the navies into the fray to set going those other measures Churchill talks about but does not reveal. But we do have the unfolding of the pattern of Allied warfare on the Western fronts this week. And whatever develops, we may be sure there's one piece of German propaganda the Allies have swallowed, hook, line, and sinker. The destiny of the Ruhr is the destiny of Germany. And the RAF and the American Air Force are going to do their pioneering best to blast that destiny into smithereens. And now this is Morgan Beatty saying so long until next Saturday. 
You've been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by Morgan Beatty, NBC's veteran war observer in the British capital. This program came to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. <laughs>